Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Washington cleared another $1 billion in aid for Ukraine as America and its allies accelerated assistance to Kiev as leaders call for more help in the face of Russia's grinding assault on the country. This as the leaders of France, Germany, Italy, and Romania visited Kiev, uh, pledging NATO accession. That came one day uh, later as EU President Ursula von der Leyen said that the country would begin accession talks. All this as Russia, for its part, either cut or reduced gas to Europe, prompting countries to call on their citizens to ration and scramble to find alternatives. Back in Washington, the January 6th committee continues to make blockbuster revelations regarding former President Trump's campaign to undo the 2020 election. That, as the markup process continues and talks on everything from more COVID aid to BBB inch forward, lawmakers appear to be on the verge of a deal on gun legislation, but it's unclear whether the measure will do anything about guns themselves. In Asia, at the Shangri-La Dialogue, Chinese Defense Minister Wei Feng He talked tough as some of his delegation criticized the international forum itself and questioned why China should participate in the future if it's going to face so much criticism. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia Security Pacific Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security. Uh, everybody, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues, and tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us again. Michael, I know you're on a very short leash at the very top of the program because your son is uh, graduating, Mazel Tov. Uh, he's graduating from high school and everybody's very proud of him. Uh, you've got more important things to do than be talking to us. Uh, start us off, where are we on the markup process? Obviously, it's been a very busy week uh, with uh, lawmakers uh, moving ahead and we're actually battling calendars in part because some of the, um, obviously the gun uh, stuff is eating into the calendar. Uh, talk to us a little bit about where we are on markup. Where does it put us, where we're headed on, on defense spending and the Biden administration's request for more money? Sure. So it, you're right. It's been a very busy week. And next week is also going to be a very busy week. So this week, uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee marked up their bill, but their process is a very closed and secretive process. So uh, very, very, very few details have leaked out. But one very important detail uh, has surfaced, and that is how much money are they going to add to the top line? And we've talked in the past about what the House will add and what the Senate will add. And I've said in the past that I expect the House to add somewhere south of $40 billion uh, to the top line. Uh, the Senate, from what we're told, added $45 billion uh, to the top line. Uh, so, and, and McConnell has been very supportive of that. I mean, at, before the markup began, uh, Senator McConnell, as you know, is the Republican leader in the Senate, you know, said this is a key opportunity to show that both parties are serious about the real growth in defense spending that will help us keep us on, on, on the cutting edge. I think it's really important because that's something that will weigh in the background as we get into some of these budget fights next year that we have been foreshadowing 
that I think when the Republicans take the House back, there might be some pressure not just to cut non-defense domestic discretionary, but to cut defense spending as well. And there'll be pressure you know, from the left. Uh, and a, an opening salvo was just fired this week when uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Congressman Mark Pocan uh, introduced a bill to cut $100 billion from what they call the grossly inflated defense budget and reallocate that money to other urgent needs and communities across America. At the same time, uh, from what I understand, Donald Trump's former OMB director, Russell Vaught, is, is meeting with Republicans on the Hill, trying to convince them uh, to cut defense spending next year. So uh, we, you know, we, you know, we're not even done with this year yet. People are already talking about next year. But uh, so we do, we will see an increase in top line. But, you know, that is, that is the authorizers next week on uh, Wednesday. The House Armed Services Committee will mark up their bill. Uh, as well as the House Defense Appropriations Subcommittee will mark up in full committee next Wednesday. So very busy week next week and expect to see a lot of amendments being filed. Uh, it's been a very busy week this week. The filing deadline is today, Friday, uh, to get amendments in uh, on, on the House side. So there'll be some, some battles to be fought. And then, of course, more battles to be fought when these bills uh, go to the floor uh, in, in July. Uh, now, on the appropriations side, right now, uh, negotiations on, on, on the top line, across the board have really uh, collapsed. Uh, they've or really ground to a halt. So, you know, and, and unfortunately there's some finger pointing. I mean, the chairman of the committee in the Senate, uh, Senator Leahy, uh, said this week that Republicans are just pushing for a continuing resolution instead of trying to pursue uh, an FY23 uh, spending deal. Uh, he's criticizing Republicans for wanting large increases in defense while flatlining the non-defense. And really that stage was set by a really you know, skewed budget that the Biden administration sent over because it, we proposed a 4% increase in defense spending, but a 14% increase in non-defense domestic discretionary spending. And, and that's a, you know, real problem because those, that was a mirror similar to what happened last year. So, and again, I think what will happen again, well, this year is we similar to last year that we'll see these numbers increase in the, in the, in the, Ar in the armed services committees in both the house and the Senate, the house appropriators will mark to a similar number to the president's request. I think it might be a little higher, but probably still close to where they are. And then when the Senate finally marks up their appropriations bill, which probably won't be until September, uh, that will be uh, at a higher number. But we do not anticipate seeing uh, a, a top line agreement until after the elections. Uh, and it reminds me, like, why is this year different from all others? Um, <laughs> where are we on the total increase number, right? I mean, we started with 4050 was what the consensus number was. Then uh, you were one of the people who was introducing the idea of up to 100 billion. Then folks were talking about 150 billion. What's the realistic number? So does this suggest that the number that's the plus up for the Pentagon is going to fall closer to about 40 billion, 50 billion? Going one I, uh, right. I, I would say uh, it's fair to say that it'll be a floor will be about 40 billion. I think I don't see it being higher than the 45 that the Senate Armed Services Committee just did. So I think we're going to be in that 40 to 45 range. Um, and which is which is crushingly disappointing. And I would add, um, does show that, that there was some wisdom on the Pentagon's part of some appetite control on their part. They knew they were going to get more money. They knew they weren't going to get that much more money uh, ultimately. And, and that's really what drove uh, some of their strategic choices, even if we disagree with them, right? I mean, they were making some choices uh, and, and some trade-offs. Um, let me uh, take you to all the cats and dogs. I cannot believe, um, I mean, this does feel like Groundhog Day, so I apologize for the audience, but this stuff is marching through and it is interconnected with everything else. Uh, very quickly, BBB, why it still matters, where we are uh, on COVID, because now Mitt Romney, somebody who's really regarded as bipartisan and, and certainly not a crazy by any stretch of the imagination, accusing the White House 
uh, of misleading him. Um, obviously, the White House says we didn't mislead anybody on on an ex COVID aid package. Very quickly, you know why this matters and where we are on that. Because I also want to get your sense on primaries, January six, and guns uh, as well. Before you go, sure. And I think we can dispose of this pretty quickly because uh, COVID aid is nowhere. Uh, and I think, as I mentioned last week, the administration has already started to move around money. Uh, for therapeutics and for vaccines, knowing that they're not going to get this emergency package. And as far as BBB goes, I mean, I had dinner last night with six congressmen and, you know, they said, you know, BBB is not dead yet. And uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, said yesterday, her quote was, it's alive. I'll just say that it's alive. Uh, uh, She's saying it's really a Senate game now. And she's right that it is. And the folks I've talked to in the Senate really don't want to lose that vehicle uh, to get something done. And apparently they're feeling a little more pressure uh, because there are some issues with paying for the subsidies under the Affordable Care Act. And that will provide them a little more uh, incentive to not only address the deficit numbers, but to raise corporate taxes, which is their plan, you know, in, in, in BBB. Um, now, I, I think we've seen, you know, as you've seen the stock market dip below 30,000 today, people's 401ks continue to get hit. Uh, everybody's talking down the economy and predicting recession. Uh, I think raising corporate taxes uh, is not going to be the best thing for Democrats' re-election in November. But, uh, you know, we've seen stranger things. So they, they refuse to give up on this. And this also impacts the negotiation on a top-line deal, which is why I think we're not going to see a top-line deal until after the election. Again, never underestimate the ability of one of America's great political parties to try to snatch defeat from the uh, yawning jaws of victory. Let me ask you a quick uh, Ukraine uh, question, right? And and I want to get um, uh, Jim's uh, and the rest of the team's take on this as well. The administration has been talking about getting weapons into the hands of Ukrainians for some time. A whole vast array of systems under consideration, uh, whether it was from artillery systems, unmanned systems, um, you know, whether or not, you know, gray eagles make it over there. And yet the process, the administration is moving much, much more quickly than it has in the past. Right. I mean, it does have a tendency of taking very seriously what to export to whom. But the system also has been moving remarkably slowly when there's a country that's fighting literally for its existence. Um, Is there any sense from lawmakers that they want this process to move faster, that they want these systems to get into the hands of Ukrainians more quickly? Uh, You know, the administration is trying to be deliberative. It's it's trying to be measured. Um, An enormous amount of stuff has moved very quickly, so they deserve credit for that. But is there a sense from lawmakers that we we need to figure out ways to move more quickly, move to pre-approvals, because this isn't just with Ukraine. There are a lot of allies and partners that feel like the system has gotten um, slowed down, bogged down. What, what's the sense on the arms export side, especially to allies and partners looking at Ukraine, but also more broadly, because the administration has been moving slowly? Well, it's funny you mentioned this. So this very exact subject came up last night when I had dinner with these six members of Congress. Uh, and they agree with you. I mean, and they've been very frustrated uh, and want to do something about trying to streamline this process, that there were certain weapon systems that we're, we wanted to send over. And uh, one of the congressmen uh, who's senior on a national security committee even mentioned that they talked to Floyd Austin and he even said there's nothing you could do about it. And they found out you know, where in the bureaucracy this was being stuck and were able to unstick it. But that they feel the, the, the system is way too complicated. And you're right, it's not just on Ukraine, but it's across the board. I mean, look, I, I deal with foreign weapon sales all the time for a lot of the companies that I work with. And I think that the tiered review process that has been was set up during the Obama administration just doesn't work uh, because now you know, the, the statutory clock won't start running until formal notification. Well, if 
Congress doesn't approve informal notification, State Department now will not send over a formal notification. So weapon systems can sit over for years on the Hill waiting for approval for informal because they won't switch over to formal. So it's, it's, it's a real problem. Now there's going to be more of a demand for U.S. weapon systems worldwide. Countries that were buying Russian systems aren't going to want to buy them anymore because they're not going to be able to get them. Uh, so they want to buy from us. Uh, and our, your, our European allies are going to want to build up their militaries. They're going to want to buy from us. So you know, we're going to need to streamline the system. And you know, getting back to Ukraine, you know, I've seen you know, Chairman Smith, who I think is very you know, thoughtful, has been very outspoken on this because he, you know, he thinks the U.S. approach uh, to our transfer of weapons to Ukraine has been too cautious. And he disagrees with the Biden administration's aversion to giving uh, them certain weapons that have a range you know, to reach Russia. I mean, he actually, I think he said uh, in a press conference the other day that, you know, they could stand on the border and fire an AK-47 across the border. You know, so uh, all, all the weapons we're giving them you know, could reach Russia. But the point of giving them these weapons is to be able to hit the Russians who are in Ukraine from a longer and safer distance away. So uh, it's been really good to see, you know, strong you know, bipartisan support. And I hope we can maintain that not just through this Congress, but into the next Congress. Um, really quickly, uh, primaries. Uh, and January 6th and its uh, impact, obviously, some, uh, you know, incredible revelations over uh, over, uh, you know, certainly this week in the in the two hearings uh, that we've seen more are, are planned. Walk us through primaries uh, impact. Uh, what does it mean? Right. Because everybody's gauging uh, the former president's hold on the party, which seems to be actually overall remarkably firm, given how many of the candidates uh, that actually believe in the big lie um, or, you know, or at least the, the notion of widespread election fraud that's been widely discredited uh, exists. There are a lot of people who are being elected on that misperception uh, in the primary process. And there are people who are being elected who are saying that they're going to that they are going to change the outcome. They're going to use their constitutional powers under their state systems to change the outcome of elections in the future uh, as a consequence if they're elected. So talk to us a little bit about the dynamic, where we are, and whether or not the, the hearings itself are really having any impact because it's not abundantly clear that they are. No, I, I agree. So I'll start with you know, primaries. Like, you know, as I mentioned last week, the primaries continue to be a, a mixed bag. I mean, look, yeah, a lot of the Trump endorsed candidates are winning, but Trump's also endorsing a lot of candidates that um, he knows are gonna win anyway with or without his endorsement. Uh, and you know, in South Carolina, uh, you know, it was a huge defeat for Congressman Tom Rice, uh, who was an incumbent congressman who voted to impeach the president. I mean, got less than 25 percent of the vote. So that was a victory for Trump. But in a neighboring district, you know, Congressman Nancy Mace, um, who Trump endorsed her opponent, uh, Katie Arrington, Nancy Mace was able to win that primary and came out uh, as, as the victor. Um, so, you know, and, and the same on the progressive side. Uh, you know, there was a, Nevada had their primary also on Tuesday and uh, the, the pro Bernie candidates, you know, lost, you know, many of those primaries. So, um, you know, it still continues to be a mixed bag. And, and, and but one thing that was interesting, too, uh, on the, during the primaries, it was a special election in Texas for a Democratic open seat, which the Republicans won. So now Pelosi's you know, majority is now four seats instead of five seats. So, you know, they continue to creep up on them. And the, what the Republicans need to win in November is a very small number. And look, I agree. I think there'll be many Republicans that are coming here that are outside the mainstream, not only of the where the average American is, but even outside the mainstream of where the Republican Party is. And there's even talk of drafting legislation to unimpeach Trump. I don't know if that is feasible, but that discussion has already begun. You know, and that you know, leads us to the January 6th hearings where, yeah, I, look, there, there are revelations, but I think the viewership is down. These are no longer in prime time. Um, and I think a lot of people's minds were made up. And even people who have their minds made up still feel they're not really learning anything 
dramatically new, even though they're seeing new footage and new video. It's really backing up the positions people had. But I think, you know, that the chairman, Benny Thompson, did the committee a disservice and the whole effort when he did say publicly earlier this week that the select committee will not make any criminal referral uh, to the Justice Department. And uh, my, my opinion is that that's a mistake because that makes it look like they've already determined what the outcome is. What's the purpose of these hearings? The hearings are supposed to be to learn more right. and understand what happened. And if you learn that there was a criminal act, then you do uh, send a criminal referral over. And, and I think he really pulled the rug out from a lot of his members, making it look like this is theater and it's already predetermined uh, by saying that. And, and Liz Cheney was very quick you know, to come out and challenge that and saying, whoa, you know, uh, you know, we haven't reached any conclusions yet regarding potential criminal referrals, and we're going to announce that decision at the, at the appropriate time. So, you know, that still remains to be seen. But I think that that they really stepped on, on, on their message there. I have to say that a number of other members have said the same thing, whether it's Lofgren uh, or Raskin. I mean, a number have come out and said, wait a minute, we, we haven't fully decided that as a uh, as a uh, as a as a uh, committee, and we've got a short amount of time because I want to move to the rest of the team, and you've got to go. You Sika uh, and competes. Where are we on on both of those? Because they're grinding ahead. Legislative calendar being eaten up by uh, gun control. Looks like we've got an agreement on a measure, uh, even if it doesn't really do all that much to control guns. Talk to us about you Sika and the calendar overall in terms of uh, how much time folks have uh, on this. You're right. There's very little time. So. Um... As I mentioned, next week, you know, we'll have the markup on, on, on House NDAA and House Defense Appropriations, and then Congress is going to leave for two weeks. Uh, and then they come back and they've got, I think, about three weeks until the August recess. So the feeling about Yusika is if it's not passed before the August recess, it's not going to pass. Uh, and now there's a, they're scurrying to try and get the conference done, the legislation agreed to before the July 4th recess. And that's going to be very, very difficult. And as a result, they decided to narrow the scope of the USICA negotiation. So there are going to be a lot of things on the chopping block, you know, labor and climate provisions, for example, some of the uh, trade language. They're just going to toss those aside to try and uh, focus on trying to get a deal because there's no way that they could take this up September. September is going to be dominated by dealing with uh, a continuing resolution uh, and, you know, funding the government. If people want to get home uh, to campaign, it will be too close to the election uh, to pass something like this. So if, you know, I, I, I'm, becoming a little pessimistic, but I do think, again, as I mentioned before, that if this is not passed before the August recess, that they would pick out the chips portion and put that in the end of year on the spending bill. Michael, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Congratulations to your son on graduating high school. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Where's he going to college? He's going to Elon University in North Carolina. Uh, absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, great, uh, great little school. Uh, thanks very much again. Look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Jim, thanks very much for being so patient. And Patrick, uh, in advance, uh, thanks for your patience, because we're going to talk to Jim about some of these European issues. And unfortunately, we're going fully sequentially this week because Jim, too, uh, has, has got to uh, run. Uh, it was an amazing week, uh, Jim, uh, in advance of the big, big NATO weed meeting in a couple of weeks. EU President Ursula von der Leyen uh, today uh, said that the EU would begin the accession uh, process. I know this is a very long one. Turkey has been engaged in this since the late 1980s, so it's not exactly a guarantee of progress. But it did come a day after Emmanuel Macron, Olaf Scholz, Mario Draghi, uh, and, and Klaus uh, Johannes uh, visited Kiev pledging more support, backing off their pressure to negotiate a quick solution to the crisis uh, with Vladimir Putin and, and keep from humiliating the Russian leader. That was all positive. New weapons were pledged. France said it would uh, send another six Caesar uh, self-propelled cannon. Uh, America obviously has pledged more. Germany had said, has said it would accelerate what it's promised 
what what does all of this mean uh, practically at a time when Ukraine is in a desperate fight to keep Donbass from falling entirely? Well, I, I think it's, you know, on the one hand, uh, yay. Uh, we're glad. I think it's glad that they felt the need to go to Kiev uh, to show solidarity, to show that they're not, um, you know, trying to do things uh, with Putin, to, you know, to uh, undercut the unity that we've had in Europe and at NATO and within the European Union in terms of pushing back on what the Russians have done to Ukraine. So glad all that happened. Uh, in terms of their candidacy, I think their candidacy is more sincere, uh, certainly at this point, uh, than it has been with Turkey. So, you know, when the Turks uh, started the process along with the European Union years ago, I think um, it was it was to me at least, and it's kind of proven out that, that wasn't, you know, that it was going to be a decades long, many decades long process. And there's been questions about the sincerity on both sides, both in Ankara as well as in Brussels about about Turkish membership. But I think with Ukraine, I think there's there's more of a sense of urgency and more of a sense of of wanting to make this happen, understanding, like you said, that there's obstacles ahead for Ukraine. But if if the EU instead had said, look, uh, this this just we're just not ready for this. It's going to. Uh, you know, this isn't going to work. That would have been a terrible blow. So I think taking this first step is is important. And I'm glad that uh, they, they were able to show the unity to do that. Uh, but 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 like you said, also, uh, Vago, this is going to be a um, it's going to be a bit of a, a bit of a, a, a slog. Um, but at the, but on the other hand, uh, you know, the equipment being pledged, like uh, the Caesar uh, artillery, uh, the U.S., we're going to provide a couple more MLRS. Uh, you know, I, I just this is this is um, they, they're going to need a lot of these. Uh, I think there was a very poignant photo a few weeks ago in The New York Times, I believe it was of a, one of the U.S. 155 millimeter uh, howitzers destroyed on the battlefield. It had taken a direct hit. And so we have to know that there's a lot of attrition going on, number one. Uh, and on top of that, the need for this type of long range artillery is very great. And even greater still, uh, the need for munitions, not just for the 155s, but for a lot of the, including the Soviet, former Soviet howitzers that the, that um, that Ukraine is using. So um, so I'm, I'm happy that we're going to be giving more equipment. we got to keep doing that. But, but we have to all understand that they're going to need um, many more systems than we're willing to provide at this stage or that we have in our inventories. And that's another thing, too. I won't take up too much of your time here, but... But I think when we're getting into long range fires uh, and the high Mars systems that we have and just a handful of other allies have it, we don't have a lot in our inventory. So um, so that's going to be a problem. And it's going to and these things just don't aren't stamped out of a factory, you know, night after night. It's not like World War Two and the, you know, right. B-17s being produced. So I think we've got trouble in terms of providing them the kinds of equipment they need right now in the numbers that they need. Um, uh, one of the um, uh, things that Russia is very, very good at is, is finding gaps and seams and trying to exploit them. Um, and, and Putin is, as usual, playing this brilliantly. He knows that Draghi and Schultz are in political trouble um, because of the uh, economy. Indeed, inflation is a much bigger problem in Europe than it is in the United States, and it's pretty bad in the United States, even though the United States is somewhat more uh, in the middle. Uh, Italy and Germany are very dependent on Russian uh, gas. You could always argue that none of these countries, uh, you know, sh should really have been uh, relying on a brutal uh, autocrat uh, for their uh, as wholly on their energy uh, supplies. 
how how does this play out um and what does this move by putin mean to cut uh these countries off gas or reduce their gas supplies um i know romania sees opportunity to sort of surge obviously it's one of uh, the gas rich parts of uh europe how how do we how does the alliance deal with this and does putin potentially destabilize governments in the hope of having more accommodationist uh, leaders in each of these capitals in the future well, that's exactly right. Uh, your, your, your point about uh, Putin and, uh, and trying to destabilize the uh, European uh, nations right now uh, is absolutely part of his, 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 uh, his game here, his playbook. For sure, he misunderstood, misread, made some bad uh, decisions based on his feeling early on that Europe was not solid uh, on this, on this, on Ukraine, that the United States and the transatlantic community would not come together in those early days to uh, help Ukraine the way it has. But I think one thing that he's holding on to, and again, it's an assumption that is, that, uh, you know, is, is, has some truth to it, is that there could be a question about how long we, we the transatlantic community or, or the, the nations uh, in Europe, uh, how long will we hold on and keep this unity? Uh, how long will we continue to provide assistance, uh, particularly as winter comes, as war drags on? Do we really have the guts, if you will, um, to, to hang on and to support Ukraine continually in the months to come? And I think he is banking on the fact that he will be able to destabilize one or two nations. Uh, he'll be able to put pressure on one or two nations in Europe, uh, including the United States, uh, as inflation takes hold, as the gas gets short, uh, and that he'll be able to last longer than everyone else and present Ukraine with the picture of the assistance not being as strong as the winter comes as it was uh, earlier this year when this war started. And so to combat that, uh, we're going to have to not just keep up political pressure on the nations to stay strong, uh, but we got to find workarounds for the for energy, for instance, uh, and for grain exports and all these other uh, tools that Putin is using to to try to make it hard on the West to support Ukraine. We got to find workarounds. So it, it, it it's got to be political leadership for sure. But but haranguing only goes so far when you're dealing with nations that have their gas reduced, uh, where political fatigue is setting in, and and uh, the people of these nations are saying we're tired of this. Uh, we're going to have to find workarounds um, to help nations keep things on a low boil in their countries, you know, as the uh, as as Putin you know, uses these tools. Uh, and and that's almost as important as providing the military assistance to Ukraine. We've got to provide the political assistance, economic assistance to the nations who are backing Ukraine as well. Um, let me uh, ask you about uh, weapons supplies. You know, you said that this is going to be uh, a prolonged uh, campaign, and in indeed it is. And the Russians, right, banked a lot of money from European energy sales, right? I mean, something like 60% or 70% uh, of the energy money they've made comes from uh, Europe, uh, ultimately. Um, right. Let's go to the weapons question that I asked Michael uh, at, as well. Why is it taking so long to get to uh, some of these decisions? I mean, it almost seems to me that the administration is doing a methodical process and the administration deserves credit, right? This isn't multiple years as it was taking, uh, for example, to uh, get capability into the hands of some of our closest allies and partners. I know the British and the French worked many, many years, for example, to get a predator uh, capability. I should note General Atomics Aeronautical Systems is one of our sponsors, as everybody knows. Um, but um, you know, there is a sense that some of these decisions are taking 
perhaps a little bit longer than than they need to be, that we are getting to where we were going to be anyway in terms of whether it's MLRS or artillery or anything else, um, and that this process could actually begin sooner, right? We approve it, then we put uh, Ukrainians into training, for example, and we've seen stories in the New York Times and elsewhere that Ukrainian soldiers have literally been trying to go, you know, use Google Translate to translate some of these training manuals because they don't know how to operate these weapons uh, when, when they get into their hands. What is it that can be done? And, and Michael made that criticism, right, that the Obama administration's tiered approval process may not be working as well. And indeed, the, the clearance process may not be working as well. What are some of the things the administration, Jim, as somebody who lived this as, as you did, needs to do to more quickly get these systems into the hands of, of Ukrainians? And can we be more creative? Can we start training Ukrainians before we make an approval decision, for example? I know that that gets into deemed exports and a whole bunch of other things, but if you know you're eventually going to do it, and the question is whether or not it takes you three weeks or four weeks to do it or five weeks to do it or six, in that time, you can train people. Time is your number one commodity here, uh, in fact, I mean, aside from the hardware. How do, how do we need to work this? How does the administration needs to work it? What does the administration need to be doing to do this better and faster, given that there's a country that's literally fighting for its existence in the meantime? Well, I, I think, uh, and, and also just uh, building on what uh, Michael said, and and uh, and I appreciate that how that uh, dinner must have been with those members of Congress talking about these things, but I think we need to separate some things out and because and, I think some things are entangled. Uh, and um, one is how the foreign military sales systems, how that system works in terms of notifying Congress. You know, Michael was talking about uh, formal and informal notifications and, 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 and that type of thing. That's number one. Number two is uh, specifically with Ukraine, getting systems to Ukraine uh, into their hands on the front lines with trained operators um, and, and that process, because they're, they're, they're related, but they're different. Um, and and so, so just to focus on Ukraine for, the, for a moment, uh, the Ukraine process, I think they are being, that has been streamlined and is really, I think, bending the rules and, and finding workarounds as best they can uh, in terms of getting stuff out, I think what we're I think what we're seeing is that some things are easier to move than others. Uh, like uh, right now, in terms of munitions and the, the 155s that I mentioned earlier, and this type of thing, um, I think those things have been moving pretty fast. And I think now that the training has a lot of the training has been done already, the training has been moving fast. So I think the 155s and this type of thing, they're out there. I think what we're seeing right now that I was complaining about earlier was more along the HIMARS uh, side of things um, and uh, and the, the MLRS that we've been talking about. I mean, and there have been complaints that the administration is uh, certainly early on were a bit reluctant to provide those because they were afraid it might be used to fire into Russia, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't think those are really the problems anymore. I think with MLRS, it's more of a of finding them uh, that we're able to provide. I'm just talking about the U.S. now. Not many allies have high Mars types of things, but for the U.S., MLRS and this type of thing, they're not as plentiful as 155 artillery and other things that we've been providing. Um, and uh, and I think there's a feeling, too, that uh, for us to be able to replace those in our own system is going to take a while because you don't, as I mentioned earlier, you don't just stamp those out of a factory. You know, this is this that takes a while to put those together. And so I think the problem now 
is more of uh, of, of, of of not necessarily having enough in our own inventory to provide the amount of say MLRS or other HIMARS um, systems, Paladin, there's other things. There's we don't have enough on our own on our own system to provide, and we're not going to be able to to fill our needs uh, more quickly in terms of new production. And I think that's what's that's what's keeping us back a bit. Um, training is part of it too. I think we we've heard how long it takes to train people to use MLRS uh, effectively. You know, the, the, you know that's that's the problem. It, it's, it's not just point and shoot. MLRS is, is complicated to use. The Ukraine folks, uh, the artillery folks are very good. And I think they can master it pretty quick. But I think there is this training component um, that's that's also slowing things up. So I, I don't think it's a system problem. In other words, a, you know, the stereotypical bureaucrat with an inbox sitting there at five o'clock looking at his watch going, well, maybe it's, I'll do this tomorrow morning. I don't that's. That's not the problem. And there's not many people like that in the system, too. Let me be straight. I used to work in that system. They're all very good folks. I, so I don't think that's the problem. I think we're getting into a very unique uh, and very uh, complex weapon systems transfer. And that's where the problem is. Uh, and, then, and then the last point, because I don't want to take up too much of your time, but, but they were talking about, uh, Michael was talking about the formal and informal notifications on the Congress. The FMS process itself has always been criticized because it takes so long. The, the three tiers or whatever you might want to call it these days, um, you know, it, there's, there's, there's always been complaints from, from industry, particularly, uh, that it takes a long time. And, and they continue to work on it. And the head of DSCA right now is Jim Hirsch, who I've known personally. He knows the system. He is someone who cuts through red tape. You've got a great director who, who can handle these problems. But but, but on the uh, notifications, I used to do the notifications years ago in the 1980s. That, that's been around a long time. You don't, we, we do the indirect or the rather the informal notifications specifically because we don't want to send a formal up there if it's going to get in trouble among the staff right. on the Hill. Right. So, right. so we've been doing this for years. It's something so that you don't, uh, you know, if you get, if you, if the staff throws it back in your face, the informal and says, oh, we don't like this. Then you're, you know, you want to fix those problems before you send up the formal, and that's that's why we do that. And uh, and I think there's a, you know, again, I haven't been in the FMS process for a little while, but but it used to be we didn't get a lot of these thrown back at us back in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, it went through congressional notification pretty easily. If there's problems now with congressional notifications, with formals or informals, then I think the Hill plays a role in this too. Either they are being really slow in looking at the informals or, they're, or they've got issues all the time. And so there's problems between the Hill and DSCA, DSCA and the State Department. I don't know what it is, but, but in terms of those notifications, we've always done it the way he described, where Mike, the way Michael described. Uh, and I think, so I think that the problem lays elsewhere. Sorry for the long answer. That's all right. Let me ask you uh, in, in about uh, 30 seconds, what were some other key takeaways uh, from the uh, NATO uh, ministerial meeting? Because obviously we're heading for the big uh, summit meeting in, in June, uh, June 29, I think, if uh, the dates uh, serve me uh, correctly. Uh, what were some of the takeaways that you noticed that in, in terms of the meetings uh, we had uh, over the course of the week? Right. I mean, we have more pledges 
a military capability that's good. The uh, Obama, uh, excuse me, the Biden administration uh, just announced the billion dollars extra. What else did you notice that was kind of interesting uh, in terms of some of the messaging over the past week that uh, national leaders are going to be rubber stamping or debating uh, in two weeks? Well, I think I think in terms of what you were just mentioning, in terms of support for Ukraine, I think the the responses around that uh, the pledging conference that uh, that the Secretary Austin held that sounded great, and and we heard from Julie Smith, she did something for CNAS uh, a couple of days ago that there was a lot of unity around the table, pledges being made. I mean, that's all great, and I just hope that they get there fast. But in terms of the defense ministerial that happened, uh, you know, at the same around the same time. Um, what was interesting to me is, uh, you know, they're very, this, whether it's the administration or it's NATO itself, there's not a lot of leaks. <laughs> there's not a lot of, a lot of the back briefs that we get at the press conference and everything. They, they don't say a whole lot. Uh, but I did pick up a little bit that I think at the summit, there's going to be a lot more that will be said or will be tasked by heads of state and government to NATO in terms of uh, NATO doing more itself in terms of, uh, of, of, um, of, of commitments on the ground. In other words, a lot, you know, they do battle groups. We know the battle groups in the Baltics and Romania, Hungary, I think's got one. Uh, it sounds like NATO itself is going to be doing more of that type of thing. Um, uh, the U.S. will play a role too, both as under a NATO flag probably, but also under the U.S. bilateral flag. Um, and so it sounded to me like there's going to be a lot more in terms of force posture, NATO force posture, U.S. force posture that will be announced at the summit to uh, strengthen um, deterrence uh, against the Russians in the future. Uh, and so um, I'm, I'm very anxious to hear what those will be. Uh, even I was even hearing that NATO sounded like NATO was going to do some uh, pre-positioning of equipment. Usually that's what the U.S. does. You know, we pre-position equipment and we fall in on it uh, when we reinforce. But it sounded like NATO was going to do something like that, too. So I think we're going to hear some some uh, some up stepping up the game in terms of what NATO and what allies will be doing on force posture in Europe. And that's that was good to hear. Jim, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Have a great weekend. Uh, have a great long weekend and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you. Patrick, thanks very much for your patience. Uh, appreciate it as we've gone uh, through this uh, program. Uh, a very, very consequential Shangri-La dialogue. First time uh, the body has convened as normal, uh, you could uh, argue, but a very, very strong online component as always. Uh, last week, we talked a little bit uh, about Lloyd uh, Austin and his message. We heard from Wei Feng He uh, as well, and I want to try to get to that uh, in a minute. Lloyd Austin did have a very, very productive uh, trip. It obviously started in uh, Asia, uh, or rather, I think it started in California, spanned around the globe. He ended it in Brussels before coming home. Uh, but let, before we get to Shangri-La Dialogue, talk to us a little bit about what he uh, accomplished uh, on this trip, because there was a significant number of very significant engagements that he had in the process. Well, the secretary is accomplishing uh, spreading the word that the Americans are serious about uh, global commitments, commitments to allies and partners, that there's a power of partnership that the United States is committed to fulfilling um, and, and seeking to work closely with uh, bilaterally, multilaterally, uh, with as many partners uh, as possible. So whether it was in Singapore meeting with so many different counterparts and leaders, um, or in Thailand, uh, where he was uh, re-engaging essentially a, a key Southeast Asian ally who has fallen out since the junta has been running uh, in the, the government in Bangkok. 
Um, and what a better, no better place to be in Southeast Asia, frankly, um, than with our ally in Thailand, where it's being run by, of course, a former General Prayut, um, and, uh, and, and Secretary Austin, of course, being a former Army General himself, um, could really speak uh, directly to him and talk about the need for closer ties, uh, no pun intended. Um, uh, and then I think, uh, of course, going to, uh, to Brussels and, and talking with the Ukraine um, contact group and, and, and setting the stage for when um, there's going to be a significant Asian Pacific presence uh, at the NATO Madrid summit. Now, we now have now know that Australian Prime Minister Albanese will be joining Japanese Prime Minister Kishida and South Korean President Yoon, uh, showing the flag for Asia Pacific as they are asked to endorsed um, NATO's transformation to be uh, closer and, and, and more significantly along the borders of Russia, uh, as well as being contributing in other ways like uh, cybersecurity cooperation. And it is extraordinary to be able to see such important uh, leaders from Asia joining uh, a NATO meeting. Um, and obviously, a lot of discussion. Uh, it was funny, uh, right? I mean, a lot of very similar, the very familiar Chinese talking points, uh, whether Wei Fenghe was uh, uh, delivering them after a crisp salute uh, to the audience that some found a little bit disconcerting. Um, talk to us a little bit about the messages uh, that the Chinese were delivering, right? I mean, somebody from, uh, you know, asked Dr. Eng, you know, you know, why is why should you know China be coming to this and be criticized like this for it? It's very messy. Wouldn't a more organized conference? I mean, right? Basically, conference organizers, uh, you know, let's just have set piece uh, discussions as opposed to kind of the freewheeling discussions that happen at Shangri-La Dialogue, one of the world's truly great uh, security events. Talk to us a little bit about the messaging that we heard uh, from uh, the Chinese leadership, from everybody else as the United States tries to organize allies and partners, but some allies and partners remain, I don't want to say non-committal, but don't want to pick sides, right, for a lot of economic reasons. China's a major market. China's a major investor, for example, right? I mean, I think the Indonesians fall in that category. Um, you know, and Indonesian leaders over the past uh, years have told me, you know, you have a Congress that criticizes us for our human rights record, uh, and the Chinese don't care. Uh, and they they get on an airplane, they fly over, they tell us they don't care, and they and they go back home. What, what were some of the messages that Wei Fenghe and the Chinese delegation uh, were delivering? What were the counter messages uh, nations were trying to deliver to China, even though I don't think Beijing was listening? Well, Vago, it was indeed a rich uh, buffet of ideas and arguments uh, at the Shangri-La Dialogue, you know, from a Friday night keynote speech uh, of Prime Minister Kishida through final panels on Sunday. Um, with Secretary Austin being the keynoter essentially on Saturday morning, um, something reserved for the U.S. Secretary of Defense in, these, in the Shangri-La Dialogue since it's been conducted for the past 20 years. It started in 2003 in Singapore, and every year it's really brought together uh, the region's key um, defense ministers, but also from, uh, from Europe and beyond. Um, it was not held in person, as you mentioned, uh, during COVID. Um, so it's it's back in person and here now against the strategic backdrop of Russia's war against Ukraine. Um, it is still a continuation though of largely the US versus the China messaging, um, this competition over narratives that has intensified in the, in the intervening years. Um, and it really was uh, quite intense uh, here in 2022 in, in Singapore. Um, I, you know, I think Secretary Austin was able to uh, play very successfully off of both uh, President Biden's recent trip to the region, 
as well as Prime Minister Kishida's keynote address calling uh, for a free and open order based on the rule of law, not might. Um, and uh, both uh, Secretary Austin and Prime Minister Kishida uh, and, and Defense Minister um, Nishi and others um, were able to play off of um, the Russian invasion as uh, a warning, a warning that uh, this could happen here. It's not that China is, um, uh, you know, because it's autocratic, is going to do the same thing as, as Russia in, in Ukraine, but it was, as Secretary Austin said in response to a question, uh, a reminder not to be complacent that war is possible anywhere. Um, and he, he talked very much about how um, the United States is going to be resolved, uh, that, that differences over in the Taiwan Strait, for instance, must be resolved by peaceful means. Um, and that uh, in response to a question from Bonnie Glazer, um, Secretary Austin said that if China used force uh, against Taiwan or attempted to, to use force to take Taiwan, um, that, that it would be unwelcome and ill-advised. And, and in response to that, you had a lot of Chinese uh, comments. Um, some of the interesting commentary, even before you get to, to Wei Fenghe, um, first time the Chinese defense minister has been with his American counterpart, by the way, in three years, um, you, you get Sui Tian Kai, the former and longstanding um, Chinese ambassador to the United States, who's now back in China. Um, I remember negotiating you know, with uh, John Chipman going in to see Ambassador Sui in China um, to try to get the Chinese to send their defense minister to the Shangri-La Dialogue, right? So there's this bargaining going on, even you know, back in 2006, um, you know, three years into the Shangri-La Dialogue to say, come on, China, you've got to step up to the plate. You have to be present and engage. People want to hear in the region what China intends. And here was Sui Chin Kai um, very much uh, being noticed in interviews on the margins of, of Shangri-La um, in standing up and talking about the words of the Indonesian defense minister saying, look, you know, we welcome, for instance, Europe in the region to help be part of Asia's peace and prosperity. But they have to understand, as the Indonesian defense minister said, that Asian, uh, there's an Asian way of resolving problems. Um, and that really sets up the, the dueling narratives that were at play in Shangri-La Dialogue that Wei Feng Han and others hit upon, which was that it's Asia for Asians versus sort of Western domination from a Chinese point of view. And from, from an American point of view with Japan and others, it's really about this rules-based, inclusive, open system that we're promoting. And those were really the dueling narratives. Now, Wei Feng Hu had sharp words, predictable words on Taiwan. They're going to fight to the very end. They're going to crush any opponent of, uh, of Taiwan unification. Um, they railed against uh, American bullying, supposedly, for having uh, group politics or these small cliques of, of, uh, of allies. Um, they railed against America's uh, imposition of unilateral sanctions. They're not all unilateral, but nonetheless, uh, this was part of the Chinese narrative that was predictable. But he really did press upon this larger point that it, China uh, is pushing Asia for Asians, that it really thinks that these problems need to be resolved within the region. Um, and I think um, you have to not just look at what Wei Fenghe said at Shangri-La, because that's the exercise in soft power. That's the narrative competition going on. But look at what China was doing around the margins, both before and after Shangri-La, I think to tell you really what was going on here. So before Shangri-La, of course, uh, remember we had uh, Wang Yi in the Pacific Islands pushing a multilateral security pact, successfully getting a security agreement from the Solomon Islands for uh, the use of force to protect Chinese interests. That's an interesting phrase because um, after the Shangri-La dialogue, 
Xi Jinping um, issues a new order saying the PLA, the Chinese military, uh, needs to have enhanced powers and authorities to be able to use force to protect America, to protect America, no, to protect Chinese property, development interests, sovereignty, you name it, anything they want uh, overseas. Well, that sounds to start pretty alarming when you put together what they're promoting through diplomacy before Shangri-La and what Xi Jinping is essentially ordering after Shangri-La, which is, you know, 10 years on in his rule and just before he takes a, a third five-year term as head of China, Xi Jinping is basically making good on his promise that the Chinese military, the PLA, is going to play a bigger role in protecting Chinese influence and power. Um, and that's alarming when you think that they've just had a third carrier to be launched, uh, and it's their next three aircraft carriers, frankly, that are going to be much more lethal and incapable, presumably. So they're growing their military power uh, at home. Um, they are negotiating security packs uh, abroad so that they have not just commercial access, but potentially military access overseas. Uh, and then at Shangri-La, they're talking about uh, you know peace, but really they're talking about Asia for Asians and about uh, there's going to be an Asian way of doing business and resolving these differences. And Shui Tinkai, just to go back to the former ambassador uh, and the man I helped negotiate uh, Shangri-La dialogues with years ago, he was talking about um, the, the fact that there needs to be, um, let me just find this, uh, that, oh yeah, his interview on, on, the, on the margins of Shangri-La, he called, you know, dangerous and alarming. The U.S. was moving away from political commitments on Taiwan. So he was actually there issuing warnings on the margins of Shangri-La uh, through the interviews uh, that he was doing uh, about American actions in the region while allowing Wei Feng he to go and take you know, the, the, the diplomatic role, if you will, right. uh, and talk about peace and security. Is is that message that the Chinese are delivering gaining uh, traction uh, across the region, right? I mean, we're we're both trying to do this, as, as you said, right? I mean, the administration is trying to do this very cleverly. They're making, going out of their way to make sure that it's not our way or the highway, um, right? It's It's definitely trying to win people, you know, strengthen alliances we have, win people over, uh, or at least get them to stay in the middle, right? Whereas the Chinese are really and have been pushing this case for a long time, right? I mean, I remember having this conversation with Chinese officials uh, at Shangri-La many, many years ago, uh, right? Uh, what, why is it Americans should be, you know, you're really not Pacific. This argument that, you know, sort of Australians aren't really Pacific either, right? They're not Asian, uh, Asia for Asians, uh, meaning to the exclusion of anybody who may be a European who might be in the region, Um uh, right. I mean, I think some of that is aimed, for example, at the French as, as well. Uh, right. How how is is the Chinese message gaining traction well, or is it being dismissed for what it is? I think the Chinese have um, if you take the, the view over the last few decades, China has gained great influence. It's also gained great access and um, even control, financial uh, developmental control and some military access uh, and influence. More recently, though, I think China's been on the defensive, um, and they were on the defensive partly because and largely because of the embrace of, of Russia just before it invaded Ukraine. Um, you know, we may not want to unite Russia and China, but they're, they seem to be doing their best to unite uh, Asia and Europe uh, and America's allies. And, and that's what Secretary Austin was talking about. They're galvanizing this. And, and I think people recognize that at Shangri-La and in the region generally, that China and Russia are indeed forcing 
countries to hedge their bets and to work more closely together in case they become even more aggressive in the region in the Pacific. At the same time, they don't want to see that develop. And so they're willing to believe the Chinese narrative as well, that there has to be another way of doing this competition, um, that it shouldn't spill over into the military sphere. Um, you know, and, and the Australian Deputy Prime Minister and, and Defense Minister uh, Richard Marles, in his speech at Strangler Dialogue, talked about uh, the catastrophic misjudgment of Russia. But then he sort of let China off the hook a little bit by saying, but we look for reassuring behavior. And that's partly because Australia's under the new Labour government is trying to patch things up on the trade front, especially with China. They've fallen off, obviously, under the Conservative government before. Um, and um, at the same time, uh, Australia didn't want to, to say that Chinese behavior has been good because it hasn't been good. It's been very bad. Um, and it did call out some of the Chinese misbehavior. And it said that's why all countries are entitled to modernize their military along the ways they need to. And by the way, AUKUS and the submarine deal that uh, Australia has with the UK and the United States is part of Australia's legitimate uh, defense modernization. So our key allies certainly are more fearful of China's actions rather than buying into the Chinese narrative. Many in Asia, though, want to sit on the fence or they maybe buy into the argument that it's just what's in it for me locally. Take, for instance, the words of uh, the Solomon Islands Prime Minister Sagavare, who just recently, this uh, last couple of days, speaking with Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong, said, don't worry, you're still our security partner of choice. Well, he's saying this after he's just accepted money uh, and signed a pact saying that China is indeed allowed uh, to use force to protect its interests. So um, he's, he's wants it, he wants it both ways. And I think many in the region want it both ways. They don't want to be forced to make this choice. And both China and America are telling them, we're not forcing you to make a choice, but indeed these competing narratives and the actions around those narratives feels like it is forcing them to make a choice. Patrick, thanks so very much for joining us. Hope you have a, a great uh, holiday weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.